This is an ABC podcast. Hey, can I ask, what are you wearing on your feet right now? I'll hazard a guess and say it's quite possibly some form of trainer, sneaker, sports shoe. And if not right now, you'll I'm sure have worn trainers recently. The modern ubiquitous sports shoe is a direct descendant of the late 19th century lawn tennis shoe, the original flat rubber-soled shoe that was invented specifically for this new sport. But at the same time, you see it being worn by young men in particular, adopting this style of very sporty clothing as part of that uniform, they start wearing tennis shoes. Even though they might not even be playing tennis, they were just wearing the shoes because they're fashionable and it gives off this kind of athletic, masculine style that the people liked at that time. Very much like today. Hello, I'm Amanda Smith and this is Sporty and the early history of the sports shoe coming up later. Also, are you stoked that surfing is now an Olympic sport? That's ahead too. Okay, so if you thought that watching test cricket is akin to watching paint dry, well, if you've paid any attention to the current Ashes series that's on in England, it might have changed your mind. Malcolm Knox writes on cricket for the Sydney Morning Herald, and he's been at the first three so far of this five test series. And for you, Malcolm, what has made this Ashes series interesting? Essentially because it's had so many twists and turns. One team can be on top even for two or three days like England were in the first match and then it can switch and go the other way. That happened again at Lords. There were several switches and then most dramatically at Headingley in the third test where, you know, you really had a game that turned uh, significantly eight or nine times before a most dramatic ending, which after four days felt uh, pretty well earned. Well, it's been said that that a test match in cricket uh, with each side playing two innings is kind of like a a four-act play, that there's a, a narrative arc to the match and there are lead characters. Now, the first match at Edgbaston saw the return to test cricket of the three disgraced Australian players, Steve Smith, Dave Warner and Cameron Bancroft. Um, and as, as in any melodrama, there was booing, but also an amazing performance by Steve Smith. Yeah, and given the context, uh, which is another big thing in the story that you're seeing in front of you, uh, what has lain behind it and gone on before it, and given everything that had happened with Steve Smith in the 15 months prior to this return to Test cricket, to see him bat, he scored more than 140 in both innings of the game, which in any circumstances is quite um, extraordinary for him to do it in those circumstances, so dramatically coming back after a long ban was real, you know, boys' own stuff. Is, is scoring two centuries in a test match moral redemption? Oh, no, not at all. Moral redemption has to be won through moral acts. You know, the currency must be paid in the, in the same coin. 
but for him to show the character that he needed to show and the ability to demonstrate his skill in those circumstances where he and the others really were treated quite poorly by the crowd. Um, it was it was just one of those great spectacles of not moral redemption, but recovery as a sportsman. Well, for the t- second test at, at Lord's, Steve Smith was again the central character, but as the sort of fallen hero, really? (laughs) Yes, so he again was really carrying the Australian batting effort on his own. England had a new player, Jofra Archer, a young man from Barbados who's only recently, um, through a rule change, qualified to play for England. Very fast bowler, Archer hit Smith quite dramatically and horrifically in the head and went down, was taken off for a period of time, then came on again, clearly affected. Um, He was soon out for 92 and he hasn't played a part in the series since, but he will be back for the fourth test. Steve Smith could have, I suppose, pressed to play in the third test, but chose not to because of the concussion. Well, consider that a lot of the questions asked for concussion require subjective answers. Do you feel dizzy? Are you suffering from headaches? Now, Steve Smith, the Steve Smith before his ball tampering suspension placed such a high priority on winning at all costs. It's easy to imagine that guy, if he was feeling dizzy, if he did have headaches, to say, no, no, I'm fine, I'm fine, given the importance of his role in the series. So when you're asking about moral redemption before, even though this was quite a small thing, it showed someone who had changed and who was prepared to put, you know, bigger picture issues ahead of the immediate task of winning the next game. And sends a message, I guess, about taking concussion in sport seriously, which is a big issue. Um, Now, look, the third test at Headingley in Leeds, Malcolm, it had probably the best narrative arc you'd have to say for a test match, starting with with England making one of the lowest batting scores ever, all out for 67 in their first innings, and then winning the game by a single wicket. Yeah, well, it starts even before that because Australia had quite a bad day on day one of the game. They were out for about 170 runs and really England looked like they should be on top there because they had a much better day to bat on on day two. Uh, and as you say, they, they didn't go so well. They, they were out for 67, lowest score in an Ashes game since 1948. And from there, it looked like even though Australia were not really capitalising to the extent that they could have, they still built up a significant lead and one where England were really given practically no hope of chasing it down in the fourth innings, even less hope after they lost their opening batsman very quickly. And, and then, then and then the leading man, Ben Stokes, steps yeah, up. Yeah, well, it was set up by a long partnership by Joe Root and Joe Denley. They really blunted the Australian attack. But even then, England were way off winning and Stokes came in and tried to get the middle order going, but nothing was happening for England. And really, even though Stokes was still there, they were pretty much finished when the ninth wicket fell. And in the next half hour, everything changed. Stokes turned the whole thing into something like a 
2020 game and played the most extraordinary array of shots in an atmosphere that was without parallel, I think, in Test cricket to bring off in the end uh, uh, an incomparably dramatic win which had even a number of minor sub-twists and sub-turns in the last minutes. Well, at the moment, with this Ashes series, each side has won one match and there's been a draw. So it really couldn't be more brilliantly poised than this with two matches to go, Manchester and then back in London. But after all we've been saying, Malcolm, they could disappoint. You know, test cricket doesn't always have that potential to be as exciting as the matches we've seen so far. Yeah, you know, it might rain. Uh, <laughs> the, the next game is in Manchester, uh, notorious for its rain. We might see very one-sided cricket, which will please the followers of one country, but um, the others won't be standing above that and saying, oh, you know, what a tremendous test series. So, yeah, the last few days have shown to us, if nothing else, that we can't predict anything and we can't predict excitement. The beauty of all sport and watching it is that you just don't know what's going to happen next. Well, let's hope these next two are as thrilling as the first three have been. Malcolm Knox is a sports columnist with the Sydney Morning Herald, also a marvellous novelist and non-fiction writer. Malcolm, it's great to get your thoughts and insights into this current Ashes series. Thanks so much for joining us on Sporty. Thanks for having me, Amanda. The Tokyo Olympic Games next year, surfing is one of the new sports on the program. Kim Crane is the National High Performance Director at Surfing Australia. Now, Kim, you were a hockey player, a hockey-roo. Uh, do you surf? I do surf, Amanda. I think the saying goes that if you, if you start surfing, then you become a surfer for life. Um, I grew up in Torquay, famous for Bells Beach. On the Victorian coast. Correct. So surfing was in my blood. It's part of the culture that I grew up in. I really understand the sport. Um, I was the biggest tomboy in town and was always out surfing myself. My younger brother and sister ended up becoming professional surfers and doing the competition circuit, but I made a choice to actually go out and play hockey. Hit a, hit a ball with a stick. Correct, <laughs> correct. I wanted a team-based sport and I needed that social interaction, so that was the catalyst for me making the move at that time. So how is surfing being turned into an Olympic sport? How's the surfing competition going to work at next year's Olympic Games? We're actually within 12 months now, so the amount of intensity around our preparation is, is right there now. So this is real. How's it going to roll over in Tokyo? We're actually an hour and a half out of the Tokyo precinct, a coastal area called Chiba not necessarily known for its huge pumping surf so we're expecting sort of small three to four foot waves would be a good day and how many how many competitors per country how does the comp work yeah small field size we can have a maximum two men and maximum two women so there's a whole qualification system that our athletes are embarking on at the moment the talent in our country we're blessed with a high level of talent so most of the athletes that are in contention for selection for us are competing on the world surf league at the moment in the world championship tour so we'll go in with some expectation not just from the system but from the general public and our surfing community that sits really comfortably with myself as a leader of the program and the athletes themselves so now you mentioned that the beach that's being used as the competition site the waves aren't all that big there. I think there was actually at some stage some speculation that the comp would be held in a wave pool. 
Yes, that's a discussion internationally. Wave pool technology, from my perspective, has been a major disruptor of the sport. Is that disruptor in a good or bad way? Well, I think it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to consider different ways of training. Wave pools are here to stay. They're a multi-billion dollar business now internationally. And I think if we actually look positively about how we can adapt our own programs and our own training and potentially obviously we're already seeing on the world tour that there's a competition in the wave pool now i think there's nothing but growth opportunities by having wave pool technology now as part of our sport all right so we did digress a bit into that but coming back to uh the Tokyo Olympics and the the beach that's the site of the comp there so it sounds from what you said earlier like it's not going to be very challenging surf wise high performance is challenging regardless of the of the environment so um, you wait it will be highly competitive there will be world's best athletes so yeah don't be misled it'll be a fierce competition what kinds of challenges are there for surfers becoming Olympians. Challenges? I think probably. You know, are they going to wear the uniform and stick to the village uh, curfews? It's a great question. That's obviously been a huge part of our education around understanding what the Olympic environment looks like as a multi-sport event and what being part of the Australian Olympic team actually means and ensuring that they totally understand one what that's all about in terms of expectations and two ensuring that they're fully committed to the Olympic Charter and the Olympic values and I can hand on heart tell you every single one of our athletes has totally signed up for that. With surfing the playing field is is the ocean in all its kind of unpredictability and volatility how does how does that impact on you know putting in place structured training programs? Um, I'll pick up on the word structured. I think that's probably the the nice little complex challenge that we have with the sport is not making it too structured and not to lose that sense of fun and the ability to have creativity and flow and innovation. The athletes who compete on the world stage are artists. Well, I think Nat Young, who's just put a book out, says surfing is not a sport, it's an art, it's a religion. I 100% agree. I think there's a misconception, though, about our sport that you can't have a typical high-performance lens, though, without sacrificing some of that creativity and artistry. There is a misconception that our athletes, because they're so highly energised and uh, sharing the stoke constantly about the mastery of the craft that they have, the misconception is that they don't train as hard as other sports or they don't think about their performance and break it down like other athletes in other sports. And I can 100% tell you they absolutely do. And you must have a role in that. The role that I play is to help them try and find performance solutions for how they can better themselves. And when you sign up for high performance as a pathway, it's not easy. If it was easy, everyone would do it. So they're essentially signing up for a life of relentless pursuit of excellence and growth and you know with a passion to push boundaries that comes with a whole 
journey of highs and lows. And yes, there's many riches, but there's also many dark days as well. And my role is to facilitate performance solutions to ensure that we create a really supportive environment for, for those athletes. So what would you say are the fundamental attributes of a great surfer, competitive surfer? Obviously technical mastery at their craft, not just for one wave profile. If you actually think of the competitive field of play for our athletes all around the world, they have to have a mastery of that skill in you know, 10 foot waves in Hawaii, you know, reef breaks, beach breaks. Uh, sometimes those skill components are very different. So they have to have expertise over a broad range of skills. They have to obviously have a mastery around their mindset and then obviously that comes with personal style attributes like you know, resilience and an ability to plan in order to prepare and that's where I think you know sports a wonderful opportunity because you're learning fundamental leadership skills that can be transitioned to life after sport in any field you then choose. With some sports in the Olympics where there is already a strong pro circuit competition like I'm thinking like tennis really the Olympics is therefore not the major competition and it's not the major public focus for that sport. How do you reckon surfing is going to go there? Because it, as you're saying, you know, it has a very strong pro circuit. I believe in the context of and, so I think that there's a place for surfing in the Olympic Games. It was a very conscious strategic choice by the IOC to include surfing. Why do you think that was? I think they see that there's an opportunity to attract the youth market with action sports and to continually ensure that there's relevance, I think, and that they've got a good read on what are the sports that are on the growth trajectory. Surfing is certainly one of those. So the context that I'm holding for our athletes in the conversations I have is, yes, the World Tour is the number one goal because that's an annual benchmark event that they're working incredibly hard for. But you have this opportunity now once every four years to and be part of the biggest sporting event in the world. And and please don't hear this as disrespecting our athletes, um, they don't know what they don't know yet. So I have no doubt in 12 months' time with an experience of the story that that question won't be asked anymore. So we're going in, we acknowledge it's our first Olympics. I can hand on heart tell you that every single one of our athletes is signed up and is working incredibly hard to try and be the two guys and the two girls that are selected. So it can only be good for the sport. And whether we stay in a beach location for future games or we move to wave pool technology, that's the debate the international powers to be will start to have. It's a long way from endless summer. It is, it is, but as I said earlier in the interview, it's if you are a surfer, you are a surfer for life. And regardless of whether these guys are you know, wearing a competition jersey and the day will come where they'll take that off, um, I have no doubt they will continue to surf well into their later years. And Kim Crane is the National High Performance Director at Surfing Australia. Kim, great to meet you, great to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks, Amanda. You're listening to Sporty with Amanda Smith. Look, next time you're walking down the street, have a look at how many people are wearing trainers. It'll be heaps, I promise you. So how did the sports shoe become such a ubiquitous footwear preference and where did it start? 
This is part one of a history of the sports shoe with Thomas Turner. He's a London-based historian and author. And Thomas, the modern sports shoe, you say, is a descendant of the lawn tennis shoe of the late 19th century. As the kind of foundational sports shoe then, trainer, can we talk about what brought about its invention? Well, I think that the, what you have is there are two things. So you have the, the, the invention of the shoe on a material level and the invention of the shoe on much more of a social level. So in Britain, America and Europe in the 19th century, the Industrial Revolution creates gradually a middle class with time and money to spend on leisure pursuits. And you see lots of rather canny manufacturers inventing new games and new pastimes that people can play. Lawn tennis is one of these games and it's successfully marketed in the 1870s and becomes very popular first in Britain and then later on in Europe and in uh, America and in the rest of the developed kind of world. The thing about tennis is it requires an awful lot of special equipment which makes it very attractive for manufacturers and one of those things it requires is a pair of a special pair of shoes that will allow you to play the game of tennis on a grass court without slipping or allowing you to run around without falling over and that kind of thing so these shoes are invented for this or created for this game that's invented in the 1870s now on a material level they're created because the invention of tennis kind of coincides with the mechanisation or the industrialisation of the shoe industry in uh, Britain and Europe. And the invention of vulcanised rubber. And the invention of vulcanised rubber, which comes about in the 1840s, 1850s, where inventors discover that if you add sulphur and heat raw rubber, then this creates a much more stable compound that can be moulded and adapted into various shapes. And crucially for tennis, it's waterproof. So shoe manufacturers use this material and they put it on the shoes that players wear. Players find it's ideally suited to their needs. It allows them to run about without falling over and, crucially, without damaging the grass because you can make a flat sole with it. And obviously the grass lawns were very expensive to install and very expensive to maintain at this time. So so was the, that 19th century tennis shoe uh, using vulcanised rubber, using plantation rubber produced in Asia as well as the the social changes that you've described, um, I guess like modern trainers, connected to innovation, you know, science, progress. Yeah, yes, most definitely. The sports shoe is always an area of footwear manufacture where manufacturers are able to experiment and try out new materials, new ways of making things, new techniques of mass production, for instance. And you see that with the lawn tennis shoe. So bringing in one of the most innovative products this rubber and they're using it first of all for sports for tennis but then gradually as they see how it can be used they start adapting it and embracing it for much wider use i think that's a you know that's a trend that we see continuing all through the 150 years of the history of the sports shoe where manufacturers embrace new technologies for sports and then gradually they get adapted for everyday use so if we look back now the type of tennis shoe that would have been worn in the 1870s to most of our eyes now it would look very much like a ordinary shoe just with a simple rubber sole and a lightweight leather upper subsequently there's been all sorts of other developments in technology that have changed and transformed the sports shoe well the various versions and styles of these early lawn tennis shoes again as with sports shoes now had sort of were given sort of aspirational names can you tell us about the ladies shoe called the el dorado Oh, the El Dorado, the land of, the land of gold. <laughs> this was a shoe that I found. I was absolutely amazed when I first saw this in a 19th century tennis newspaper. I saw a little advert for it. Um, 
I think perhaps it's interesting to give the background to the shoe. I mean, the advice that was always given to players of tennis in the 19th century was that flat shoes were what were required because obviously if you wore a heeled shoe, you might damage the lawn or you might fall over and twist your ankle. But what you see is women complaining because um, tennis becomes a very fashionable social event. Uh, the game becomes very popular. And, um, and the, that's the, the marvellous thing about tennis, of course, is that as a sport, as a leisure pursuit, it was for men and women and men and women to play together. Exactly. It was for men and women to play together. Men and women could play against one another, which was quite an innovation. And you see this becoming linked very much to young romance and the idea that uh, you know men and women can get together and perhaps flirt and play with one another. Now, because of this, women start complaining about flat shoes because high heels are becoming fashionable and they start demanding much more feminine styles and high-heeled shoes, even though they're not very practical for playing the game. The El Dorado, this is one of these shoes that answers this need. It has a high heel and a, a lower forefoot, but the two are connected by a flat corrugated rubber sole with a big gap in between them. It's this slightly bizarre, odd kind of creation. Um, but apparently all the reviewers in the press in the ladies' magazines, they said that this was a fantastic creation and one of the best tennis shoes they'd ever seen. So even though it's absolutely ridiculous for playing tennis in, it met the needs of the players in that they wanted to look feminine, they wanted to look attractive, and they wanted to look fashionable. A high-heeled sports shoe, it's fantastic, isn't it? Was, was Exactly. The- was the the 19th century tennis shoe for both men and women, though, used more broadly, uh, not just in other sports, but as now for general non-sports wear? Oh, yeah, definitely. The tennis shoe becomes something that is worn by people outside of tennis very, very rapidly. So you see it being embraced and worn by people playing other sports like uh, running or basketball when that's created in the 1890s. People use it for cycling. People use it for walking. But at the same time, you see it being worn by people as a fashionable item of clothing and you see young men in particular in the late 19th century adopting this uniform or this style of very sporty clothing um, as part of that uniform they start wearing tennis shoes and they're seen as an everyday fashion as something that marks out young people even yeah that's kind of 19th century cool 19th century cool, exactly, yeah. You see this in adverts or when you see it in reports in the press, people saying, oh, the, you know, the young men in tennis shoes. And it's a, it's a marker of young men. Even though they might not even be playing tennis, they were just wearing the shoes because they're fashionable and it gives off this kind of athletic, masculine style that people liked at that time. Very much like today, I suppose. Yeah, well, I mean, in here really... Uh everything you've said are all the factors and contradictions that apply to the modern sports shoe. The word that I think best describes the sort of pull and and the desirability of sports shoes, from what you were saying about the original lawn tennis shoes through to today, really, um, is that they somehow embody insouciance. Would you agree? Is it is it the air of insouciance that makes them so appealing? Insouciance. Mm, yeah, I you say it better than I me. I think it's that connection to uh, athleticism. There's that connection to comfort. There's this this idea of technology and forward thinking and ever progressing. 
and just that they are casual. I also think, though, that you have this connection with youth and perhaps the popularity of the sports shoe from the late 19th century through to today is connected to the focus that we place as a western culture perhaps or as you know developed cultures on youth and how important we think that is so wearing sports shoes is something attached you know playing sport you generally high level sport particularly is the preserve of the young isn't it so this is something that gives you an air of that keeps you vibrant keeps you young so perhaps that's part of the appeal and Thomas Turner is the author of The Sports Shoe, A History from Field to Fashion. And the next part of this History of the Sports Shoe, coming up next time here on Sporty. Nadia Hume is the producer of Sporty, and I'm Amanda Smith. Each week at this time, you can listen to the broadcast on ABC, RN and Grandstand Digital, and anytime, listen to the podcast on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts from. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.